best. So uh, good afternoon. I'm Karen Wilson. I'm a senior fellow here at Bruegel, and we're delighted to have you all here. Um, very good turnout for this uh, um, important event on competing with big data. Um, we have a number of people here also who were at our senior economist meeting earlier today. So, so welcome. We're delighted to have you here. And um, I just wanted to say that uh, in our discussions this morning, we were talking about our research program for next year. And data, big data, kept coming up over and over again. So we're really delighted to be having this event today. We're particularly delighted to have two very distinguished professors here with us, um, one all the way from MIT arriving this morning, Catherine Tucker. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us. Also from uh, a little bit less further away, uh, we have uh, Anya Lambrecht. She's an assistant professor at London Business School. So both of you, thank you very much for joining us. Um, they will be presenting a new paper that just recently came out, Can Big Data Protect a Firm from Competition? And then that will be followed by a panel discussion. <coughs> and here we're delighted to have uh, Jacob uh, Kucharczyk. Sorry, I meant to ask you before, but there was no time. Thank you. He's the director of the Brussels Office um, of the Computer and uh, Communications Industry Association, otherwise known as CCIA, not CIA, uh, <laughs> CCIA. Um, then we're delighted to have uh, Beatrice uh, Sanz uh, Fernandez Vega. She's a senior legal and competition counsel from Telefonica, one of our member companies. Beatrice, thank you so much for joining us. And finally, um, from Brussels, I guess the only one, oh no, two, the second one from Brussels, uh, from the European Commission, we're delighted to have Cyril Ritter here with us. Um, Cyril is the case officer with the European Commission and DG Comp. So we're very much looking forward to the discussion. Um, we have the window open because there are a lot of people in the room, but if it's too noisy, let us know and we'll close that. Without further ado, I'd like to turn to Catherine and Anya. And thank you again for being here with us. All right, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for that welcome. That was lovely. Anya and I are absolutely thrilled to be here today. And I tell you one of the reasons we're thrilled is that often when you write a paper, the usual expectation, your, your expectation as an academic is maybe four people, at least two of whom are your friends, or maybe one of your husbands might read it if you're lucky. And so it's just very exciting to have this audience today who we can tell, you know, and our aim is, I guess, to try and encourage you to actually read the paper we've written as well as listening to the presentation. So thank you again, and thank you for this wonderful place to present it. Now, as you may have gathered from the fact that you've seen it in big letters since you've come in, uh, what we're doing today is we're asking, at a very high level, a question of, well, we've all heard a lot about big data. Can it protect a firm from competition, right? Given it's such a new big thing, can we think of it in terms of protecting a firm from competition? Now, that's the research question. Let's define some of those terms before we go any further. So what is big data? Well, at some point, someone who's probably a marketing person came up with a really good idea of how to define big data in that it found three, they found three words that all began with V. And those three words are data which has high volume, um, you know, you're not really anything unless you're talking at least in terabytes. It's going to be data which you're taught where there's high velocity. 
in that the data is coming in in real time at a very frequent pace. And lastly, when you think about big data, you're also thinking about variety, right? That we're going beyond the normal common day sort of scanner data that we've seen in marketing research in the past. So that's what big data is. Let's now go and sort of say, well, why, why are we sort of asking then, well, why is it that big, is big data um, able to protect you from competition? And I think part of it comes from both of our experiences teaching in the MBA classroom. So in our other lives, when, we, when we're um, business school professors, we have this wonderful experience of every year we get to teach lots of very keen 25, 26-year-olds and something I found is that there's no one more vulnerable to fads and fashions than 25 and 26-year-olds taking MBAs. And so I've seen a huge change during the last few years as an MBA professor, just in terms of students' interest and enthusiasm about data analytics. In that in 2005, when I started teaching, the general wisdom was never show an MBA student a number your ratings will suffer if you dare show them a number. You know, just sort of you know, play a few videos, tell a few stories. And now we've seen a big pendulum shift where our MBA students don't feel you're doing your job unless you're teaching them something about R. So we've sort of seen that shift, and I think it's reflected the advent of what we call big data. Now, as I say, so they're very excited about big data. And I think there's this general feeling that as an MBA, all you need to learn about is big data. And certainly both our business schools are propagating this notion in that if you look at what we're advertising on our websites, this is from LBS. They're saying, come and sort of study biggest analytics and big data. That's what you need to learn. That's what business is going to be in the future. I think MIT, let me tell you, we're probably the worst offenders in the world at this. We have like big data pages everywhere. We have many, every course has basically been renamed either big data or analytics. And, you know, we're, we're obviously, you know, hoping to train the next generation and charge a lot of money for it. So, you know, we're part of the sort of problem here. Now, so that's the background. So we have this change in MBA education where I think there's just this big sea change. So what we need to learn as a business person is how to think about big data, how to deal with big data, how to do analytics. But we wanted to step back a bit and say, well, is that really what we sort of need to then compete in, in, in you know, compete as a firm in the world world? Is that all we're going to need? Now, one thing I want to sort of clear up before we go any further is that we're not saying, when I say this, that big data is not a managerial talent. Instead, we're actually going to still not, uh, we're not going to try and completely dismiss our university's efforts. What we're going to say is that big data is, is a managerial challenge, but it's a managerial challenge not because it's the best way of competing or the best way of protecting yourself from the competition, but it's a big managerial challenge just simply because the constraints on labor supply. And so the way I want you to sort of think about the enthusiasm or groundswell that we're seeing about big data, both I think, you know, we see it in some of the UEC's recent reports, we're seeing it in the classrooms across the world, is not that big data is about beating the competition. Instead, the way to think about it, I think, is that really there's a huge constraint right now in terms of managerial talent or anyone who's going to actually be able to handle big data. 
And so as an economist, I know we just, you said there were senior economists in the room. I'll just do a little bit of economic speech, remind, reminding myself I have a PhD in economics. The way I think about it is if we're thinking about economic rents from big data, the economic rates are really sort of going to labor right now where people can help handle this labor challenge. Okay, so we're not saying that big data is not a managerial talent, it is, but it's a challenge because of lack of labor supply. And we're also going to argue, and this is going to be the sort of big substance of the paper we wrote, is that by itself, big data is probably not a source of sustainable competitive advantage. Now, you might say, okay, uh, you started speaking about economics, you did economic rents, and now you're speaking business school speak because you're talking about sustainable competitive advantage. What do you mean by that? Well, the good news is that in business school, this is like basically one of the big things we teach. That we have these strategy classes, and our big job is to analyze whether stuff is a sustainable source of competitive advantage. And indeed, the entire profession of strategy as an academic discipline is given over really to this question, what is a sustainable source of competitive advantage? And so the various competing models, they, we're going to use a sort of mashup of the best of them. I'll mention Barney. 1991, that's the one which most people tend to use in the classroom. But I also have to mention my colleague, Berger Wernerfeld, who managed, I think, to write that model down in 1984. Unfortunately, he made the mistake of just putting in a footnote. Um, but we still at MIT claim that he came up with some of these ideas. So basically, there's this entire academic discipline where all they talk about is sustainable competitive advantage. And you might think about it as firms being able to find ways of charging above cost in the long run, right, without, or in some ways protect themselves from the competition. Now, when you hear that, doesn't that sound surprisingly like antitrust, right? That we're sort of thinking, well, uh, well, surely isn't that just the flip side of antitrust, that in antitrust we're always worrying about whether the barriers to entry or things that w which might hurt consumer welfare. And I always find it surprising that so little dialogue between these two disciplines, in that we have antitrust where people are constantly trying to analyze economic structures or behavior to understand whether there's something anti-competitive about them. And then you have this entire field of strategy, which, to be honest, is mainly trying to set you up to able to avoid the competition. So they never really talk. And the only novel, our big novelty here, really, is taking this entire literature, which you haven't heard of, and applying it to the question of whether or not big data is a sustainable advantage. So that's, what that's the basic idea. Um, okay, so what is I'm saying? As I say, many strategy professors have fought long wars against each other about what criteria we should use to understand a sustainable source of competitive advantage. We are going to take sort of the best of them. And what are these criteria? They're quite interesting, and I think they're a really useful way of perhaps thinking about whether or not something is a barrier to entry if we were to use the language of, micro, of antitrust. And so what are these criteria? Well, we're going to have inimitable, which means, obviously, you just can't imitate it. It means it's rare, right? It doesn't matter if you can't imitate stuff if it's, everyone's got it. Um, it has to be valuable. And I also want to add to valuable, this extra criterion, 
which is whether or not it's exploitable, in that it's no good something being valuable if you're not actually able to put it into operation. And then the last thing is non-substitutable. How is that difficult, different from inimitable, you might think? It basically means there's no different thing you could do if you don't own that resource. Okay, so that's going to be the criteria you're going to do. And if you go through the paper, basically the criteria is just step by step going through these, thinking about big data. I also want to emphasize we're not the first people to do something like this. If you look in the strategy literature, this is all the strategy literature is. Uh, though in the past, they've sort of tried to apply these to things like manage, um, human resources, managerial talent, patents, and so on, right? So it's not a new thing to be doing. Now, let's go through them in turn. And what we're going to do is I'm going to take the two first ones because they're the quickest and easiest, and I'm going to hand you over to Anya to go through the, the final two, which are a bit more nuanced. So the first question is, well, is big data, and remember big data is this data characterized by these three Vs, is it something which you can't imitate? in some sense. Now, immediately when I, we sort of thought about this, we thought about that one of the unusual features of the internet is in some sense how easy its very nature of digital technologies make it to actually imitate any one piece of data. And so, for example, if I'm searching on the internet, we might think, oh, well, Google's learning something quite interesting about me. But at the same time, I'm also leaving a footprint on all the websites I'm visiting. I'm also potentially leaving a footnote with my ISP or telecommunications company that has my internet. Um, perhaps if I'm doing it on my phone, I could be leaving, it, um, leaving a record too with my cell phone carrier. So there's many different ways I am at any one time leaving a digital footprint, and different people, different firms get to see these different digital footprints. So that's one thing that came to us. Well, the very nature of digital technologies makes it difficult to have any kind of big data that some kind of firm, another firm hasn't potentially got insight to. And just to give you an example of this, uh, going back to that Google example and the idea of searching, well, you might think, oh, that's really valuable data, and certainly as a marketing professor, that's an interesting thing to sort of think about, simply because Google now knows what I might want to buy. Really useful, unique data, you might think. But also, at the same time, if we look online, uh, there's even better data potentially out there. So, for example, who might, who, what data might be more valuable? Actually, data on whether or not you went ahead and purchased, and who has that? Well, your credit card company has that, and guess what? They're selling that to advertisers as well. So there are many sources to buy data. Um, even suppose, potentially, you aren't touching that digital footprint itself. So the next criterion we're going to come to is whether or not big data is rare. And here, this was a little bit easier, is that <coughs> we say no. And the reason we say no is that if we were to go two decades ago, I think it would be fair to say big data was rare. And why was it rare? Well, really, only very big firms or potentially governments 
could afford the massive storage costs involved of holding this kind of data. But now what we see, and if you crinkle up your eyes and have very good eyesight, you may actually be able to see this graph. What you can see here is just an amazing decline in terms of how much it now costs to store data. And this means that many companies, uh, you know, I can't help but think um, I have this local cheese boutique. Uh, cheese boutique, that sounds very pretentious. Basically, there's a lo local shop near me that sells cheese. <laughs> and, um, and, it's a, and I was asking them about their data. And it shocked me. They have terabytes of data, just this, this one shop that shells cheese. And why have they got all this data? Well, they're basically tracking how people are moving on their, their website. They're storing this data. They're analyzing it. I never knew that the cheese buying process was this complex, but apparently it is. And so even, you know, when you're sort of at the stage, right, where, where cheese shops uh, have, you know, have terabytes of data, and why can they do this? Well, it's just so cheap to store this. So we're sort of facing a fundamental cost shift, which means that big data, or at least the ability to store big data, has transferred, I think, from being something that only big, posh firms who, or governments were able to, to store than others. And I think this, this goes back, too, to the idea of a digital footprint, that one of the reasons it's not rare is that the nature of behavior online or the nature of data when you're, say, using a, a cell phone is such that any, at any one time, Many different firms get to see your digital footprint, so I think that also makes it less rare. Okay, so I've done two of the criteria. I'm now going to hand you over to Anya, who will go into more detail onto the question of whether big data is valuable. Thank you, Catherine. And again, thank you, everybody, for coming here today. Just move this a little out of the way. So, um, as Catherine said, now the... If, if you could just stay near the mic, because we're live streaming. So, you can stand if you want, but... No, 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 sorry. Thanks. As Catherine said, the, uh, the next question is, is big data actually valuable? Now, uh, the, to make it, what actually happens when you think about <coughs> big data is valuable, you need people to make this data valuable. Now, if you think back many years ago, 20 years, 30 years ago, and think about market research and how firms would go about and try to understand their customers, there was very limited data. But that also means there was a limited amount of technologies any marketer or IT person at the time would need to master. If you look at the space of available databases, um, technologies, this is immense, right? And the, the little uh, plot you see there, if you can um, as read anything on that, right? It outlines the big data landscape today and outlines the many different technologies, uh, programming interfaces, codes that are available, and that data, uh, uh, data analytics people actually need to master. Why is that important? Because, well, imagine you have all the data in the world. You have these wonderful data warehouses. How do you actually get insights out of these, right? Well, you can only get insights out of these wonderful data warehouses if you have people who are able to distill these insights out of these data houses. I'm working with uh, one uh, company in uh, the digital space in London these days, and uh, they have uh, wonderful data, actually amazing data. They collect everything that's available. But a key challenge for them 
um, they want me to, to look in detail at their available data, a key challenge for them is to actually extract the data. Now, this is two reasons. First is you need people who have the skill level. The second, any <coughs> bit of data manipulation, any bit of data extraction takes time, even if it's just a day, right? Now, you have firms, especially <coughs> in the internet space, that are very much driven by quarterly results. Right? If that's your objective, what's the insight, what's the gain of spending one day on extracting <laughs> a piece of data with perhaps uncertain value at the end of the day? Right? So talent and financial resources are a key constraint here for many firms to make data really valuable. Uh, and this is just uh, one example. As you can see, this uh, uh, DG Connect worries about this topic as well. Right? How do we address the skill gap in, uh, in big data, and if you Google big data skills gap, you'll be amazed how many hits you get out of a sudden. Now I hit the mic here. Um, well, why else is it very challenging to make big data really valuable? Now, Catherine talks about volume, right? And when we define what is big data, volume, variety, velocity. Well, volume is great, but how much can you actually get a volume? And at some point, the diminishing returns to ever more data sources are just small, right? They get tiny. It doesn't, and other data point doesn't tell you anything more about consumers' preferences. Well, you have a variety of data. But think, what is this variety of data? You may have video data, and then you have website tracking data and purchase data. And many firms already, and this, I find this personally surprising, have difficulty for their own website matching browsing data to purchase data. Right? So variety actually introduces, and these are not very different type of data sources, right? Variety introduces a huge challenge for firms. Well, which means if you go back to the original questions, how can you make this a competitive advantage? Well, you kind of need to overcome the variety problem. Think back, if you now try to match, uh, let's say, video data to that, the challenges become even greater. How do you actually distill manageable insights and then combine those across a variety of data sources? Well, then the velocity, right, which is about how quickly can you ever accumulate new data and, uh, and then use them usefully. <coughs> well, you can say, you know, if I know about something about consumer now, I learn about that consumer's preference. At this point in time, I know they might be willing to buy a certain shoe tomorrow. Well, perhaps that helps me. But how good are firms actually in using this data and data in the short term and respond to that in the short term? How much does an insight on a particular consumer's preference actually helps them in uh, firms in converting that consumers? So Catherine and I have a different um, research paper on retargeting in, in online advertiser, on online advertising. And the insight we have there is that actually Personalizing an advertising experience to the consumer doesn't always help. You may want to advertise them, but the very specific product they were interested in, it perhaps doesn't help to advertise that product. Which means, well, even if I collect the detailed fine-grained information, I might not be able to translate that into higher revenues or into a competitive advantage more broadly. Now, the, the other point is one that's very close to my heart, and that is, as you go on and collect greater and greater databases, how much can you actually infer as a marketer or as an economist about the causality? Right? How much can you infer about whether 
um, let's say a marketing action, let's say an online ad, actually made a consumer buy. Well, at the end of the day, what you observe is a huge basis of correlational data. Well, correlations tell you any something about correlation, right? Not about causality, as I'm sure you all know. Now, the challenge is, of course, once you start working with these deep, big databases, you, you run regressions, correlations, you get everything is wonderfully significant, right? Uh, and the more data, the more significant. But how significant are these insights? They might be actually insignificant. The skill down is to identify what is actually meaningful among all these correlations, right? Is a um, consumer taking a cab today in Brussels because it's raining? Um, or because they have an inherent preference for driving cabs, and it always rains in Brussels. No offense. <laughs> so, so how do you? So, and you make lots of these observations. You see all these correlations in the data. How can you actually disentangle causality? Right. One way that you can use to disentangle causality is, of course, well, in economist speech, ex introduce some exogenous variation, run a field experiment, A/B tests, right? And there are more and more companies that attempt to run field experiments. But let me tell you from my experience working uh, with a number of tech firms. First of all, it requires a lot of resources. Right? And it requires skill. You may say, oh man, you know, it's very easy. You just set up some randomized experience and run this. You have this wonderful data. Well, it's surprising how often firms feel it is actually um, very difficult to implement A-B testing field experiments. And that might be because they feel they're putting their revenues at risk. Right? Again, it's about short-term revenues that might be foregoing. You might be foregoing if you actually experiment between different settings. Well, it is also because not everybody is trained in running field experiments, right? Well, then you get to the stage where you have a number of firms who run these type of experiments, which would be nice, right? Because, well, you can't assume you can't manipulate the brain in Brussels, but you can randomly decide whether or not to show a consumer an ad for a product or perhaps a replacement ad for a charity. And then if you find everybody who sees the ad, they buy, and those who don't randomly not get exposed <coughs> to an ad, they don't purchase. Right? So then you might be able to make some causal inference. Well, what in my experience is uh, a really important point is that even those firms that run A-B testing field experiments often do not have the time and resources to dedicate to evaluate these type of data. Right? So um, I, I've worked with a number of companies who happily say, well, why don't you look at this data? We've run these experiments, but we actually don't really have the time to look at it. Right? So when we ask, is big data valuable? The point is, lots of people have data, right? But it's very hard to distill insights from this data. And it's actually incredibly challenging to distill valuable insights because of the lack of exogenous variation that you have in a big a basis of data and because of the difficulty to introduce that um, a variation and to actually the cost of implementing this, right? So, and big data is valuable. Well, what's really valuable is to have the people and the resources and the organizational infrastructure to distill the insights. Big data as such is just a bunch of correlational information. Um, well, so this gets us to the next point, the last on our list of four, is big data actually non-substitutable? Is there anything else that you could do or implement instead of big data? 
And this is a very interesting question to ask because you could say, well, you know, big data is so important, even if firms are not that good at distilling insights, well, you know, having a little insight might be better than nothing. Well, if you look at whether uh, big data is non-substitutable, it turns out that's not really the case. Um, and let's first start with an industry where you tend to have uh, a lot of data, right? The telecommunications industry. See, all big telecom firms, um, even Skype, right? They have lots of data. And they're good at using this data in some way, right? Deriving ever more targeted pricing schemes to consumers, um, uh, understanding uh, how to expand their network, the whole set of operations. So data analysis plays a big role for these firms. Well, on the other hand, out comes WhatsApp. Right, out of nowhere, essentially. Now, you could argue, well, all these big telecom firms, and including Telefonica, of course, right, and even Skype, they have access to all this data. Um, but WhatsApp was basically able to start up and become very prominent a channel of communication for many consumers without any access to data whatsoever. So, so it appears that the ability to, from a marketing perspective, have really understanding what is it that the consumer wants. How can we provide superior value to a consumer? Can actually be a competitive advantage, right? Can actually also substitute the ability to analyze data. Let's go to another example. Um, I'm sure you're all familiar with Candy Crush here. Are there any regular addicts here among us? So if I go on the London Tube, you always have people candy, playing Candy Crush, right? It's a, a very, very, very popular game, of course. And again, King Entertainment with Candy Crush came almost out of nowhere. There were lots of other gaming companies, think Sony, Nintendo, right? And these companies regularly have some access to data. Well, it didn't take data for Candy Crush to be um, successful. What it took was a superior value proposition for the consumer. So with my marketing perspective, I would say, well, it's kind of back to marketing 101. Provide value to the consumer with a superior product. Um, and it's not the data that make WhatsApp, uh, uh, sorry, Candy Crush successful. Um, what's really interesting is also if you think about Airbnb. So if essentially now we are in a space where um, there's been some data, where data has been used to some extent let's say online travel companies, so intermediaries. But if you go to hotel companies, the use of data is, let's say, quite mixed depending on the institutions. Um, still, Airbnb came up out of nowhere. It's not the access to big data that allowed Airbnb uh, to grow. What made it grow was, again, the superior value proposition to the consumer, right? And then last but not least, well, there's been dating companies for a long time, right? There's been plenty of dating companies in the online space. It's almost unbelievable that after so many years, any new company can be successful. Well, what made Tinder so successful? Well, first is they did really a smart idea to integrate that with mobile movements, right? Mobile phones, of course, the platform, but more interesting, location now matters. Right? I want to meet someone in a bar. Well, let's see who's nearby. Again, it's about a value proposition to a consumer. All these other features are related to Tinder, right? So you swipe and um, you don't re openly reject people. There's only a match when both sides agree, right? All these features made Tinder a more successful, more attractive uh, platform to use than, um, 
than all the other online dating uh, 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 platforms out there. Right? And that's important. Um, it's important because, first of all, we're already in the digital space, right? And you can see how innovation actually drives competition here and not the access to data. And the second, uh, the second point why it's important is that this is about platforms in a way, right? And you could argue, well, in a setting where you have platforms, well, data is more and more important. Well, it turns out even here, um, it was not, Tinder wasn't successful because of any access to data. And in a similar line, well, um, anybody remembers MySpace, right? It's ages ago. There was MySpace, and at some point there was Friendster, but we only know Facebook nowadays, right? Now, these guys, MySpace, uh, Friendster, they had lots of data. No, no shortage of data. But Facebook was able to innovate along a couple of other dimensions, right? They made the, the website environment for the user uh, less cluttered. They gave more control to the users, to, to, to the consumers. So again, so from a marketing perspective, it's about value to the consumer. It's about understanding consumer needs and then delivering to these needs. And uh, going back to, to the question we asked here, well, is big data non-substitutable? Well, clearly, uh, Ideas, innovation, and understanding consumer needs can substitute for insights that can be gained from big data. Now, I have to come to my punchline now. So, uh, so where are we? So we talked about um, big data, whether big data is inimitable, right? whether it's rare, valuable, and meaning can companies really exploit the insights that are potentially hiding in a database? And is it non-substitutable? And overall, our conclusion was actually no, right? There are many reasons why I would argue big data as such is non-inimitable, right? It's not rare. It's not valuable per se, right? You need people. The people are those who are valuable. It's not the data as such. And else, it, I just told you at length, I don't think it's uh, not substitutable, not, not non-substitutable. Um, so the key point really, um, uh, before I get there, the key point really for me is, it's uh, what is important and what do I think, coming back to, to Catherine's earlier as a startup and positioning of our talk, is what matters is labor, right? And it's the ability to distill actionable insights and the ability to distill actual insights to better understand consumers, better understand consumer needs, and then to deliver, improve, constantly innovate to, improve to um, deliver a better consumer experience, right? And at the base of that can be data. But the key point is to have these abilities and this labor, because data is available to many people. Um, yeah, and this is echoed by firms. This is uh, just another um, uh, recent article by MIT Sloan on the point that, pardon me? We're unstoppable. Exactly. So MIT everywhere is data there. So. <laughs> um, on the point that, well, we're getting beyond the hype, right? So what is actually beyond the hype? What is actually beyond the hype is hard work, and that echoes uh, the points that Catherine and I have been making. A similar what you can see here is the um, uh, percentage uh, of people believing, business people, that uh, analytics actually creates a competitive advantage, right? And you can see that is declining. 
Uh, well, and that is very much along the lines that, that I mentioned. And what I do believe is that companies do need to up their game in terms of distilling insights, in terms of getting better knowledge. And I do firmly believe that uh, this can uh, create a lot of uh, innovation potentially, right? But the data per se is uh, perhaps not the, uh, the key point. But the rare resources are really the talent, the insight, and frankly, the money and the willingness to put the money behind this. Thank you. Great. Uh, thank you both very much for that very uh, enlightening presentation. A, a lot of food for thought there. Um, I know we're very short on time and we have a panel. Um, and I know all of you probably have a lot of questions. I just wanted to ask you one quick thing. Maybe it's not so quick, but if we could have a quick answer. Um, you know, given that we seem to be moving a bit from the hype to the reality of big data, what do you think is next? I mean, how do you think uh, um, companies are going to react? What are the policy implications? Such a hot topic. We'll talk more about the policy implement, uh, implement, uh, implications in the panel. But how are companies handling this? What do you see in the reaction so far? Well, I think there is a very large heterogeneity where you find some companies pushing much further along into that space. And I talked about the need to run uh, field experiments, A-B tests. Yeah. So there is a set of companies who would I, uh, let's call them the sophisticates, who are good at doing the running this, these things. Uh, and among those, there is a set who are reasonably good at distilling the insights out of them. But there is still a fairly large set who um, I think could learn more from the type of experiments they are running. Right? And then I think you have another set of companies who is uh, less, <laughs> less good even, uh, even in setting up and running uh, these type of things. Right? So I think it's still a fairly heterogeneous space. Great. Okay, well, let's turn to the panel. So first we'll hear, from, uh, we'll hear a corporate view from Beatrice from Telefonica. Thank you. Thank you. Well, first of all, I would like to broaden a bit the debate because I think that uh, we need to put all this into context. We are nowadays in a digitalized economy. I don't like to talk about digital markets because everything has become digitalized. When you uh, ask for a taxi, in, for a cab in your, in your mobile, in your smartphone, uh, when you go to Airbnb or, or when you shop online, I mean, everything is uh, getting digitalized. And in this economy, uh, there are new business models. This, these new business models usually are two-sided or multi-sided. And usually, you don't pay money for the services. You pay with your data. You pay with your data. And I think this is something very important to bear in mind, because this changed a lot the way that economics should uh, uh, analyze data and the role that data are having in the competitive process. I think that the companies, of course, uh, compete uh, on, 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 the, uh, on the recollection of data. But I completely, uh, I, I fully agree with your um, main conclusion that mere big uh, data or big data as such has, uh, is very difficult to, to provide for dominance. I mean, you need anything else. If we go back to, to, to my first idea that uh, we need to include the role of data into the analysis, uh, there are several things I would like to, to add. Uh, let, let's let's uh, leave the dominance for, uh, for the, as the last aspect. But uh, if you take the competitive analysis we usually do in a competition case, you get market, uh, market definition. 
if you don't pay money, if you don't have a price, how are you going to define a market with a SNP test? My first idea is we need new tools or we need uh, new ways of applying old tools. Maybe uh, some of you, I'm sure you have read Newman saying that maybe we don't need a SNP test, but a SNIC test. Instead of uh, looking for the increasing on the price, looking for the increasing on, of, on the costs for the user. And those costs will, could be in terms of price, in terms of data, in terms of attention, time, uh, engagement. You can call it as you want, because I, I think that uh, convergence is also uh, making a, a deal on that. And, and, and we, we need to, to, to find new ways to, to, to put forward. Mergers, merger control. Uh, we have seen uh, that some really relevant mergers, as, as Facebook WhatsApp, uh, was not captured by merger control regulation, was something surprising for some of us. And uh, the debate is open. Do we need new thresholds to capture those mergers of companies that don't have a very big turnover because their business model is different? Do we need to include data in that new threshold? I think it, it could be difficult because to uh, turn data into turnover, it's really a difficult task. Although there are several ways of measuring data. And, uh, and you can see a, a complete analysis by OECD about how to measure the value of data. So it could be a, a, a way. Maybe the, the value of, the, of the, 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 um, the transaction could also be, because I'm, I'm quite surprised that uh, uh, if uh, the succeed of uh, WhatsApp had nothing to do with data, why did Facebook pay $19 billion for WhatsApp? I just give the, the question there. Another issue is um, the privacy rules. Uh, if privacy rules are different from different players in the market, if you don't have the ability to compete with regards to data, you are at a disadvantage from a, comp uh, from a comp uh, competitive perspective. Uh, so uh, we think there is a, a real need to uh, forget about the privacy directive to let uh, the telecom companies really compete with the, with the, in, in those data-related markets. And also to have a new business models, because the problem is that uh, telecom companies cannot follow those business models that are nowadays used in the digital world. So it's something that I think, in, in my opinion, until we have a different rule, or the rules are changed, we need uh, to take into consideration in the analysis that we have that disadvantage. And finally, if I go to the uh, assessment of market power, first thing is that if uh, you take uh, data as price, and uh, I don't want to enter into the long debate if this is, is a currency, is not a currency, is a, a production factor, is a product itself, it's really economic theory, and, and, and for me the important thing is that it's, uh, data is uh, it's playing a, a very relevant role in the competitive process. So we need to take it into account. If I take into account to um, uh, look for a dominant position, to, to, to analyze if there is a dominant position of, or not, if uh, in the traditional analysis the control over the price was an evidence of dominance, in this new world, the control over the amount of data that the users have to give 
in exchange of a service, in my opinion, should also be a way of dominance, or at least an evidence to show dominance. And uh, I, I know this is difficult to, 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 to uh, define very precisely what is having control over the data, but I think that the idea is, is there and we have to, to look for tools. And uh, finally, if I had to see or, or to, to analyze if data concentration could provide for dominant position, I would say no, not as a general rule, but there are uh, some um, other features that could provide for such a dominance. Why? Because data are valuable and uh, are valuable and are uh, easy to exploit. You can exploit data by targeting advertising. You can exploit data by customizing the products for your uh, users. And you can also exploit data by, uh, very simple, by, by improving your services. When you have data about your users, you can improve your services. And here, I have to say that the market equilibrium is different than in the traditional world. This is not, I have, uh, I, I need to give the less data, the better to obtain the best product. Because there is another factor that have to be taken into account, that is when I give my data, quality improves. So maybe we also need to review the economic analysis we have been doing for a while. Uh, uh, I fully agree, the mere accumulation of data is not a, 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 an evidence of dominance, but if uh, you have different type of data about the same user, you are <coughs> best positioned to uh, tailor products for him or for her. If you have data that are coming from different sources, Again, you have a better profile of your users. If you have control over the processing technology, and the processing technology, I think, is really the key, of course, uh, you are in a better position to serve your, your users. And here I agree that the staff, uh, I mean, talent is also important, of course. Uh, uh, WhatsApp, if, uh, WhatsApp is the best uh, example about it. But uh, uh, processing technology, I think it's even more important. And uh, you need investments and you need uh, overall time. I know this uh, world is very dynamic, fast moving and so on and so forth. But when somebody uh, uh, comes to the telecom industry and tell us, well, but in the telecom industry, you need very high investments. You need time because you have to deploy a network. With uh, big data and data and data processing is the same because uh, data processing is a learning machine. When you have been for years uh, learning from the data and learning how to process the data, you have an advantage. And I'm not saying that this is done, uh, not legitimate, of course, but you have an advantage. And lastly, one element that I think that it's uh, quite obvious that could uh, give an evidence of dominance is the ability to uh, reserve data for one company because you keep like some exclusivity over the data. And uh, I, I'm sure that the, there are ways of reserving data 
if you, for example, uh, encrypt data in a way that you are the only one that can have access to the data, or if, for example, you use a proxy to reroute the data only in, in a way that only you can have access to those data, it's also a way of having some exclusivity over those data. So all these features should be taken into account. And finally, those markets, uh, again, even if they are dynamic, fast-moving, they also have high uh, entry barriers because there are very high network effects and as they are two-sided, the network effects, the, the network <coughs> sorry, effects are impacting in each side on the other side. So there are direct and indirect network effects. And in a world which is usually uh, <coughs> developed in a closed system without interoperability, with very difficult uh, portability, and all this make that sometimes the uh, entry is very difficult. Moreover, when there are already companies that uh, has a very high uh, position, because uh, I mean we all know that those uh, network effects uh, markets has uh, this uh, trend to be uh, that the, the winner takes all. No, so it's also uh, something to 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 bear in mind. Again, the bottlenecks as well. Sorry, as well the bottlenecks due to the, those close ecosystem. And finally, uh, also uh, I think that not only the dominance should be, uh, the analysis of dominance should be um, rethink, but also some kind of abuses. Because if uh, we say that, uh, for example, data is the new price, maybe an excessive uh, charge of, of, of data, if you are uh, asked to provide more data than needed, it could also be considered as an excessive pricing data, however you want to call it. Those kind of, of, of new analysis that maybe we should, we should, um, sorry, maybe I have stand too much. <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for, for sharing those thoughts. I can already sense uh, Catherine and Anya ready to respond, but we're gonna move to the next panelist and then I'll give you both the chance to respond to the panel and then we'll open up to, uh, to questions. So Cyril, uh, the view from the commission. Thank you. My name is Cyril Ritter. I'm a, I'm a policy officer in DG Comp, uh, where I look at uh, data issues, personal data issues, big data issues, among other issues. Uh, and today I speak in my personal capacity, so uh, these views are not necessarily the, the views of the European Commission as a whole. Um, of course, the, the interaction of big data and competition policy is, uh, is the hot issue of the moment. You know, there's, no, there's no think tank, no university, no law firm that hasn't done a, a, a panel on this uh, lately over the last two years. And I think it's essentially, uh, as Beatrice just said, it's, it's because data can help you improve your products and also you can use data for targeted advertising purposes. Those, those are the two ways to monetize uh, data mainly. Uh, and looking at those two ways to monetize data, you could see, in, in theory, you could see competition policy, uh, a competition policy angle to this, either in an abuse case, you could try to build an abuse case, again in theory, or you could try to, to build uh, a theory of harm in a merger case by saying that two uh, big data companies merging uh, are causing problems because of this, and therefore the merger should be uh, should be blocked or, or prohibited or, or remedied. So those are those are in theory the the, the angles that you could uh, that you could use uh, to look at this issue. 
Um, now, again, over the last two years, there have been many, uh, many panels and conferences on this, but also many reports. The, the German authority has issued reports, the, the UK authorities have issued reports, both the, uh, the CMA and last week the House of Lords uh, issued a report about the platform economy and the use of data in the platform economy. Uh, there is going to be soon a joint report of the French Competition Authority and the German Competition Authority, again about, about this topic. So it's a topic which is heavily studied and discussed at the moment. Uh, all of this uh, start, started around 2012 when my previous commissioner, Commissioner Almunia, delivered a speech about the interaction of data and competition policy. Then the debate continued with the, with the EDPS, the European Data Protection Supervisor, which issued uh, as well a report on the same topic. Uh, and my current commissioner, Commissioner Vestager, uh, also joined the debate recently with her Munich speech. You might have seen it. Uh, the text is available on the internet. And you can see there her position about the interaction of competition policy and personal data and big data. Um, today I would like to focus m mainly on the big data angle because it's, after all, the, the topic of this panel and topic of the, of the paper, and, and leave aside personal data for a second, uh, even though I saw that Beatrice uh, raised the, the topic of the interaction of personal data and, and competition policy, uh, but perhaps that's for another, for another time, uh, for me at least. Me, the, the, the feeling I have looking at this debate again over the last two years is that the debate is extremely polarized. You have, uh, you have two sides to this debate. You have the people who are looking for issues with data, and you have the people who, who are saying, you know, there's no issue, just move along, and there's nothing to see here. Um, and what I, want to, what I want to bring today, the, the message or the perspective that I want to bring today uh, is that uh, it's probably better to, to, to start with a message of, of uh, moderation and humility and to see things uh, very much on a case-by-case -case basis and to avoid overly broad statements or definitive statements, uh, you know, one way or another. You can see that, you can see this, this polarized debate, for example, in the use of metaphors about, about data. Uh, everybody has seen the, the McKinsey papers and the World Economic Forum papers saying that data is like oil. So everybody knows that metaphor now. I think, it's, uh, I think in some respects it's true because you have to extract data, you have to refine data. It's kind of like oil. If you have a leak, it can be harmful. <laughs> also, also like oil. Of course, it's not like oil because uh, a lot of data is non-rivalrous, so that's, uh, that's a key difference. Um, I've seen another, another article saying that data is a bit like gold, so kind of the, along the same lines. I've also seen articles saying that data is like water. It's like the sea, it's like the ocean, or it's like sunshine, you know, and it's, it's <laughs> brightly shining on, on all of us, and you, you know, we, all get, we all get sunshine, and it doesn't negatively affect uh, the next person. Um, all these metaphors are, are partly true, but what I want to say is that they all bring a single, very polarized perspective, whereas it's probably better to, to look at this from a, from a case-specific or case-by-case -case perspective. Um, of course, these panels are only fun if you can bring a bit of a contrarian perspective. You know, that's, uh, that's the purpose. So I would like to, to, to go through a couple of points uh, about the paper. And the first one is that the paper, uh, it seems to me, the paper by, by uh, Ms. Tucker and Ms. Lambrecht, seems to me to be um, downplaying the importance of data uh, as an asset or as, a, as an input, essentially by saying that it's not really about data, it's about the skills needed to exploit that data and turn it into a, a compelling product. Not so much about the, the data, but it's about the skills needed for that. 
uh, and my my reply would be isn't that true of every asset or resource or, or input you know uh, of course if I find the oil in the ground in my garden here in Brussels you know uh, I would be very lucky and a very rich man hasn't happened yet uh, but I would still need the skills to turn it into you know some kind of you know refined product you know to so that, that I can sell it to, to an oil company that I ultimately can go into a car so it's essentially true of all uh, all resources that you need a lot of skills to turn the raw resource into an exploitable uh, product that you can sell. Uh, so that in itself doesn't seem to be to be an argument uh, which is specifically uh, applying to data. The second point is that is the debate, which has been a bit present today, but also has been very much present in all uh, conferences about this topic over the last two years. It's, it's what is really the currency of the internet. Um, many people will tell you uh, that data is the currency of the internet and therefore data should be shared. Uh, so you should build abuse cases or merger cases about data. There are competition issues about data uh, because data is very important. Um, I think to be, to, be, to be fair and to be more moderate, uh, there's, a, there's a whole equation of factors here. It's not only the data, but also the analysis and also the, the attention that people, uh, that people give to your website on the internet. All of that allows you to charge a lot of money for your targeted advertising. Uh, so uh, it's, it's really this combination of factors uh, that you can monetize and, and not only data. Um, another point, about the about the paper and uh, and I think Anya or or Catherine was raising the point a moment ago, is this idea of the fluidity of markets, especially at the at the current moment, you know, in in high tech industries, the idea that today's market leader can be overtaken and can be superseded by the new market leader, and we've seen that you know in the search market and in online search with with uh, Google's predecessors, I think that was Alta Vista and, and and these people that we were using 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, we heard the example about the, the, the predecessors of, of Facebook, and then Facebook came along and, and wiped out everyone, everyone else. And the argument there is that these, these, these positions of leadership, of market leadership, are very fluid and very changing, and they're not so much entrenched. And again, I, I have some doubts about this, because this happens essentially in every, uh, in every industry at the beginning of every industry. When you have an emerging industry, you typically have lots of people entering the market to try to, to, to make some money out of it. Uh, and there is a lot, of, uh, a lot of fluidity, a lot of leapfrogging, a lot of innovation. You can see that in the, in the TV market in the 1950s, everybody was making TVs. You can see that in the car market in the first half of the 20th century. Lots of car brands, lots of people making cars. And then over the next you know, two, three, four decades, you know, the, the, the numbers were reduced, were drastically reduced to just a few car brands. So it's normal that in the emerging stage of an industry, there's a lot of movement, and you have successive market leaders. Uh, and later on, there's a bit of a shakeout. I think that's the, that's the management term. And after the shakeout, only a few firms uh, survive, uh, and they become much more entrenched. And then it becomes much more difficult to displace the market leader. So again, that's a different perspective that I would bring compared to the paper. 
Uh, next point is the paper is very much based on the US perspective, especially when it comes to data brokers. Uh, it was not so much present in your presentation, but the paper uh, mentions data brokers as a, as a source of data. It's related to your point that data is everywhere and data is, is uh, available from multiple sources. Um, if, you can, if, you, if you cannot build your own data sources, then at least you can buy data from these data brokers. And that is a, a key difference between the US and the EU. So that's a finding in your paper which I think is not fully transposable to the EU. In the EU, data protection law is much more, uh, is much stricter. Uh, and so buying and trading personal data uh, is much less easy in the EU than in the US. Uh, in the US, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but US privacy law is a little bit less strict and, and also it's, uh, it's sector specific. EU privacy law is, is transversal, it applies across sectors. US privacy law is sector specific, you have, you know, um, you have protections of uh, health data, you have protections of financial data, protections of criminal records. Um, the, the, the perspective here is a little bit more protective of, of personal data and therefore data brokers have a much smaller role and therefore it's much harder in Europe to just buy and trade data in the way which is uh, illustrated in, uh, in the paper. And finally, I'll come to my, to my last point. Um, it's often said, I think with reason, uh, again, I'm, I'm making points about both sides of the argument. I'm uh, sort of middle of the road. Uh, I like the middle ground and I see good arguments on both sides. It's often said that there are decreasing returns uh, for data. And that's of course true. I think the, the first you know, billion observations for whatever website you're running, whether it's a search website or whether it's a social network website. The first billion observations are very useful. The next billion observations are also useful. And perhaps the third billion observations are a bit less useful. I think that's, uh, that's true also in this sector. But it's also true, if you take a different perspective, it's also true that there can be increasing returns to, to data when you combine different types of data. Uh, so it's not so much about the quantity of data, but of course if you combine a person's preferences with a person's revenue and with a person's geolocation, if you combine all that you know, at the right moment, uh, then you have, you have sort of more than the sum of its parts. And that in a way can be uh, increasing returns. Thank you. I'm happy to leave the floor to the next speaker. Great. Thank you. Okay, we'll quickly move to Jacob and then open up to the floor. Uh, sorry, come back to Catherine and Anya. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, and thank you for having me here. And um, I know in the last speaker, so I try to keep it short, and I um, focus on three points um, in my intervention here. The first one, first I will talk about investment into European e-commerce ventures. Second, I will um, discuss a little bit uh, what was discussed on the panel already, this interplay between uh, competition enforcement and big data. And thirdly, I will just very briefly go into um, well a rather novel theme, which is this interplay between data protection and competition rules. So I think, um, just like uh, some of the previous panelists, I think I would like to step, take a step back from the from the policy debate we're having about this theme. And essentially, what I would like to talk about is investment. Um, the the question there becomes really, um, how do investors, people with real skin in the game, see this debate? Does the data advantage of current incumbents of the companies that are most popular uh, today, does that deter investment into um, the new generation of companies? 
Well, um, we have partly an answer to this question in this little study, which our uh, trade association commissioned last year. It is um, a study which we commissioned with an independent um, equity research firm um, in the UK. And the question we asked them is, how much investment is there in European e-commerce companies? Now, when you think about e-commerce, um, well, you might be thinking that uh, investors might be deterred to invest just because you have players like Amazon, you have eBay in, in Central Eastern Europe, you have the Allegro Group, companies that have been there for a while, that have definitely a debt advantage, lots of users generating lots of data um, um, throughout the last years. However, it seems that um, investors do not care much. So for the last three years, between 2012 and the end of 2015, we, had an, we saw an investment boom into European e-commerce companies. And to give you one notable example, I, I think most of you will know Zalando, uh, not least because they just recently had a huge advertising campaign here in Brussels streets. Um, so Zalando um, is a company that managed to grow within eight years. It was founded in 2008, and it took them eight years to become Europe's biggest uh, fashion e-tailer, surpassing Amazon in that segment. So obviously, it seems that for at least Zalando, the data disadvantage that I had at the very beginning when I started the business does, um, wasn't really a problem. Um, now, I will turn just briefly to the, uh, to the second point and raise some of the issues that have already been raised in, this, um, in, the, in the debate. I think for, when it comes to competition and big data, I think for now, um, currently for us, it's quite difficult to see how a company, by accumulating data and by drawing insights from the data, would fall foul of competition rules. Ultimately, and we agree, data is not like oil. It is not exclusive. Um, it, it, it isn't possible for online companies to simply go out there and suck up all of the data, keep it to themselves, create a data monopoly or anything like that, and not leave anything for, the, for competitors. It is quite simply impossible because of the very nature of data, which, uh, which, were, which was discussed here. Um, and I think um, what Commissioner, Commissioner Vestager has made a very sensible comment in that then she said that currently she, she doesn't see a need for competition authorities to intervene just because companies hold data. Ultimately, data doesn't equate market power, and we fundamentally agree. And, and, and she's right. I mean, data is actually nothing less than information. And if you have too much information, it is quite irrelevant. And I think, again, um, in line with what was said, what matters is the insights that you derive uh, from that information. So really, I think the, the bottleneck here is not access to data, it is access to talent. And I think that when it comes to the regulatory debate, I think that um, um, uh, the, what, what the European Union, what regulators should focus on is really to ensure that we have an environment in Europe in which small companies can scale up, have a, a common market. I think the DSM strategy of the European Commission is the right way forward. And second, maybe um, work on measures that make it more attractive for um, data scientists' talent to simply come, well, to come to Europe and, and, and support their development. Um, I think my last intervention, um, and I'll keep that short, is um, just some general thoughts about this new theme of data protection and competition. I think most of you uh, would have seen that last month the uh, German Competition Authority has opened an um, investigation into Facebook. Um, the, the logic there is some, is, as far as we know, the logic is that um, Facebook's abused its dominant position because it has imposed terms and conditions on its users that are infringing data protection rules. Now, um, I think the one thing that I would like to stress here is that the, the problem of that approach is that it simply risks blurring the boundaries between 
data protection rules on the one hand, on the one hand, and competition enforcement uh, on the other. I think it is a source of um, legal uncertainty, and also in a way it pushes uh, competition enforcement outside is rather more an economic role that it has um, um, currently. So um, just in summary, my, when it comes to my punchlines, um, first when it comes to investment, uh, we see that there is massive investment at least into e-commerce uh, companies in Europe, which shows that there is the data um, is not perceived to be a barrier to entry. Second, um, I think that currently there's no need for competition authorities to intervene when it comes to big data. And thirdly, I think we should keep a clear division between data protection rules and competition law. Thank you very much. Great, thank you. Catherine, Anya. Okay. So four things I'd like to say. So, the, you know, this has been a very non-controversial panel, but I'm going to try and make it controversial. Uh, let's, let's stoke some fire. So one thing which, you know, uh, Beatrice said, which I thought was very interesting, was about the price of data. And I want to tell you um, about a study we've done at MIT, which, for me, as an economist, makes me understand how difficult it is to measure anything about the price of data. And in this experiment, what we did was we gave everyone $100 in Bitcoin. It was a very MIT experiment. The Bitcoin's irrelevant. The main thing is that while we were doing this, we asked people for data about their friends and their friends' email addresses. Now, we hadn't realized this is actually a very sensitive piece of data. And what we found was that on average, when you just asked MIT students for this data, they really didn't give it to you. And they gave you, on average, false email addresses. And they were obviously intentionally false in that they would put swear words or expletives into the email addresses, abusing the people who'd asked them. So this was definitely deliberate. So we saw that, and that was for half the students. The other half of students, we gave them a slice of cheese pizza. Uh, that was it. And so for those of you who don't live in America, that's about $2. So $2 slice of cheese pizza. And we said, if you give us your friend's addresses, we're going to give you this $2 slice of pizza. And at that point, we got the right information every time. Now, I just want to say this, because these MIT students, they're bright kids, they understand what they're doing, right? And what was interesting for me was that if you looked when they were sort of lying to us and hiding the data, it was very consistent with their privacy preferences, and that those who said they cared about privacy the most were the ones swearing at us the most. However, even the people who said they really cared about privacy gave us the addresses when they were given a slice of cheese pizza. So that's the problem I have as an economist, trying to measure anything about the price of privacy, because people have stated preferences and their actual behavior is a little bit different. Um, second thing I want to say is just, um, I love citing my own papers, so I'm going to cite another one. We once looked at mergers and health uh, and data, and this is actually in the hospital sector, and what we found was, unlike what you might think, the more data you had, the more likely that merger was to be a disaster. And the reason was, was basically all these technologies fought against each other in a way which no one really anticipated. I'm just sort of adding it that in there as an anecdote. This is a health sector. You might say hospitals are just crazy. But often we sort of think in mergers, I think we always assume that the data integration process is going to be seamless. And instead, it can actually be a big, big, big cost. So you're... Go ahead. Good, OK. Uh, last thing I was just going to say is I think, you know, I think it's a really interesting point, which Cyril was saying, which was um, 
which was that privacy laws have this, especially if you look in the EU, can potentially act in an anti-competitive way. In that, once you have a, you know privacy protections in place, that can help maybe uh, uh, favour dominant firms. And there's actually two papers which have explored this theme. I just like to highlight. One is not by me, and is instead by John Josh Lerner, HBS, where he's actually looked at how data protection laws have inhibited startup growth in in Europe, in I think quite an interesting way. Um, and then I have a theory paper of lots of math which proves what he actually saw in the data. So if that, let me give to you to Anya. Thank you. Um, yeah, just a few points to add. So this point came up of uh, both the, uh, how can you pay with the data? And also along this lines, is it a data or a skill? Now, I think an interesting question is also consumers paying or not paying with data. And if you look at the ad blocker usage, the topic of advertising came up, especially in Europe, that's at 20%. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's actually, in terms of targeted advertising, it potentially uh, makes that problem of targeting irrelevant if consumers don't view any ads anymore. And um, related to that, I was recently, and you could ask, well, who are these people, right? And we know, that we know very little actually about who uses ad blockers. And um, <laughs> we recently, uh, I recently looked at data from a large, let's just say a content portal broadly, and uh, whoever paid or uh, some way of paywall, and you'll find that actually even among those who pay, there is a large fraction of consumers who are not <coughs> use, who are using ad blockers, right? So if you talk about the price of data, well, consumers are actually not always that willing to pay with their data, which I think adds an interesting <coughs> perspective of how telling is the data actually when we know it only applies to, to a fraction of the consumers. And I think that's a point that for um, marketers and economists is still an open point. I mean, that's up for debate. Another question that, um, that Sarah brought up is I think very interesting. You know, you talked about the shakeout and, and what happens when the shakeout has happened and uh, what happens before the shakeout happens. And I think it's particularly interesting in the digital space because I think the question is, when does the shakeout happen, right? And, you know, I wouldn't have thought before uh, WhatsApp, to stay with that example, came out that there's actually still space for innovation in the, in the telecommunications or in that type of communications industry, right? People used emails and people used um, uh, text messages and then there was Facebook. And who would have thought that there are more consumer needs uh, in that space that could be satisfied in such an amazing manner, right? And uh, and so I just want to ask, you know, what does shakeup mean here, right? And uh, since the innovation, this digital space, I mean, it's amazing what we've seen the, the last 20, but even the, the last five years in, in terms of changes, um, is there actually, did, can we actually speak about a shakeup being do, done, quote unquote, right? And I think, again, that to me seems a, a question that's open in, in an industry that keeps on moving. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, yes, we have a, uh, I have a number of colleagues, including Scott, who's dashing out, who've been doing work in the space, and I wanted to give them a chance <laughs> to say something, uh, but he has another appointment, so it's under duress that I'm having him stay. To, yeah. Thank you. Okay. 
Okay, well, uh, just a couple of words. This has been an absolutely fascinating panel. I'd like to thank you, all, all of the speakers very, very much. Uh, just two, two quick thoughts occur to me. Uh, one of them has to do with this, uh, the, the, uh, the pizza example. It, it seems to me, in a way, this is kind of consistent with the sort of experimental economics work that uh, people like Equisti do that suggests that, uh, that, that consumers are often ill-positioned to judge the value of their personal data or make, uh, make choices that seem uh, irrational from, from the outside. Uh, the only other point I was going to make actually relates to this question of remuneration and whether, uh, um, whether basically payments other than money uh, have meaning legally. And it occurs to me that, uh, as, as you're probably aware, uh, in terms of the definition of electronic communication services, uh, those are defined actually analogous to the U.S. as being for remuneration. Otherwise, it's not a public, uh, a, um, an electronic communication service. And the court precedent is that uh, payment with data for example, for advertising purposes, is treated as remuneration. So, uh, so there kind of is a precedent for that. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Scott. Okay, so I wanted to now, I know that we're already uh, over time uh, with the permission of my colleagues over there. Um, if we can go a little bit longer, if you all are open to that, I'd like to take some questions uh, for the panel. So first hand here. Thank you, Jakob Greiner from Deutsche Telekom. I try to make it quick, many thanks for this uh, panel, it's very interesting. Um, I just want to uh, maybe contest a little bit the, the thesis that uh, it, it has been or it will be always innovation that drives as success and not access to data. Because I think what, what you can do if you, if you compile a lot of data, it's not only for your own uh, business. With that data, you can also enter into, into new retail markets uh, like banking, like insurance, like health, that others maybe not. And the more and more I enter in, into these markets, the more I can exclude others. And there I think indeed we have eventually a little bit of competition problem. Uh, and, and, and picking up on that point uh, that, that Jakob said, uh, that um, you should in a way keep data protection and competition law separate, uh, I think it's probably not going to be so easy. Because if you, if you um, now listen closely to the commission, that is not really saying a lot, but I think at least uh, the, the deliberations are going on whether ex ante or ex post should be the right approach to all this uh, topic. Probably right now it's more ex post than ex ante. And um, um, the, the problem that I'm seeing is the effectiveness of remedies. If you treat all this problem, if let's say there is a dominance, uh, and there will be some cases in the future, what are effective remedies? And one remedy could be you grant access to data to others. I think this would be probably the best remedy. Um, we have seen now that there is a problem of data protection. It's not that easy to, to get other companies get access to your own data, because if you would do so, and if it's personal data, you would have to ask each and every consumer, do you agree that me, company XY, uh, have to, is giving this data to other companies? And if that is not possible, and I mean, I think there has just recently been a case in Belgium, it's uh, some kind of a lottery case uh, um, where they did exactly that, and they sent a letter out to every consumer asking for his consent. If that is not the solution, which I think is quite an effort for a big company, is the solution a remedy where you gain access to anonymized data? Then I think there's a question of effectiveness. Okay, so I'm going to take uh, all questions together and then give our panel a chance to make a final comment answering uh, the questions. So other questions? And if you're not at a mic, it's okay. You can just come up to the table. Yes, please. 
Yeah, good afternoon. I'm Friedrich Bach from Telefonica. I, I just, I mean, perhaps it's only a comment uh, because there are no more questions, but I was a bit surprised uh, that Catherine said it's, it's a not um, polemic panel because actually I had the impression that Cyril more or less said the opposite. That was you claimed. Uh, because I have the impression that you said, well, actually, all that, I think it's just blah, 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 and it's not important. Uh, <laughs> because uh, it's like if you want to make steel, the important is having a steel plant and have workers, but you don't need ore. Or, I mean, uh, I, I, I think, um, of course, it's all those things together that, that make it. It's not because you have only data that you will conquer the world, but, I mean, it's also not the opposite. It's not, I mean, that does not mean that data is not relevant, which I have a bit the impression that was, was you measures of your study. Okay, la yes. Hi, I'm Fabrizio from Facility Live. I'm the vice president. We are a startup. We do the job, the data job for telcos and, and banks. Uh, I have two questions. The first one is to uh, Mrs. Tucker. I'm a social media addict, not a Kenny Crush addict, although I founded the European Tech Alliance with King Games. Uh, you say that free is a great marketing strategy and a terrible pricing strategy. So can you elaborate a bit on that, knowing that Facebook put the price tag on users around $5 some time ago? I don't know how much is it now. And the second question um, would be, um, well, I'm a data processor. Uh, I'm used to process data from other people and from companies that have been collecting them. Uh, what would be your take around the idea of data as a, a public goods, like uh, natural resources? Uh, in general. That's it. Okay, great. Then we will uh, turn to the panel. I'll let Catherine and Anya go first. Yes, so on this earlier point uh, from Deutsche Telekom, I think one point that I want to make clear is that I don't think data is irrelevant, right? So, and, and that's why we spend so much time talking about why skills matter. And the perspective where I, where we come from is you know, we teach MBAs, and, and they talk a lot about big data. And then you talk to them about their background and their skills. And these are very smart people, right? High, very highly educated, very smart people at one business school and MIT. Um, and you, you discover that actually the, the skills and the ability to understand what is behind this data, to think about cause, to make causal conclusions, to make causal inferences, um, you know, that, that there's still quite a gap, right? I mean, there's a skill gap. And I think that's what's important. And, uh, and that's why I, well, personally I worry about, right? Because these are the people who are going to make decisions, right? And the last thing, I, I mean, I'm a marketer, right? The last thing I want is the people, highly educated people, going out and perhaps making not so great decisions. That's why it's where I see our role as business school professors. And I think the other perspective, like really thinking about a marketer, you said, um, as a marketer, you know, uh, you can have big data and then you can come up with a new idea, I think, in a related field, I think, something like. So ultimately, what do I worry about as a marketer? It's about providing value to the consumer, right? And, and, and delivering on consumer needs and understanding consumer needs. And data might be one way to do this. I completely agree. I think my point when talking about data not being non-substitutable is that, that very often there are different ways, right? And, that we see in many industries is that innovation actually comes um, surprisingly so, surprisingly so, from, from companies or people who actually don't have the data, right? 
and uh, and that's why I feel well you know if you see that there is perhaps a substitute for data and, and data could deliver other insights right and um, I think that's where we have to think very carefully where do you actually these ideas come from and ultimately linking it back to the consumer and asking well what are the different ways to understand the consumer? What are the different ways to provide value to the consumer? And then to think about, well, how should that be taken forward, right? Great, okay. Okay, wonderful. So I am going to continue to disagree with you and say I think this has been a very polite panel. Maybe I'm used to the US where we all shout at each other, but for me this has been quite smooth. Um, now, you obviously saw me on Twitter with one of my students tweeting out one of my slides, right, where I talk about why free is a, a great marketing strategy and a horrible pricing strategy. And the reason I say that is that so often, you know, we always, I think, see the success stories, but so often I have startups come to me and ask for advice about pricing, and they say they want to have a freemium model. And what they usually mean by that is we don't have any idea about how to do pricing, so we're going to give up. And what I always say is it's very easy to anchor people on free, but it's really hard to start charging a price after you've anchored people on free. So that's just sort of coming, that's one of the interesting things about the internet economy, in that for whatever reason in 2000, so much of it was zero price, or the anchor price is zero, and we're still in that equilibrium, it's been hard to shift. Yeah, I would like to clarify something because the well, there has been many comments about competition law and data uh, privacy rules and the overlap uh, among them. And I think that uh, the object of uh, those different rules is very different. Uh, privacy rules uh, has uh, as, an of, uh, as, a, as a final goal uh, to protect uh, the fundamental right to, uh, to privacy, but competition law should care that the, the um, competitive process is, the, 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 is efficient. So I, I don't think they really overlap. They are uh, looking at data from different perspectives, and I think that there should be room for both of them to, to rule over data. Uh, I want to briefly reply to our colleague from Deutsche Telekom. Um, <laughs> it's been done, so what you were mentioning was if the remedy to a competition law infringement w was to, if the remedy is to hand over a company's data to, to another company, how would you go about uh, doing that in practice? It was done in the Belgian case you mentioned. It was also done earlier in a French case where the, the French utility company, I think it was uh, EDF or GDF, um, had to share its customer data with, with a, a newcomer, with a new entrant in the market. And there, I don't think it's actually very hard. Um, these companies typically reach all their customers every month, you know, with the bills, either in paper format, you know, in the envelope that you get in your mailbox, uh, or by email. I mean, nowadays, lots of us uh, get the invoices by email. Uh, and the way the French authority did was to reach all those same customers and ask them if they minded that their data would be handed over to a, a, a new entrant in the market. And the authority decided to, to contact all of these people according to the same method that they were using for their invoices. So the people using electronic invoices were getting an email. People using paper invoices were getting a, a letter. Ne next question is, do you have um, opt-in or opt-out consent? You know, do you require people to actually positively reply, yes, give my data to the new entrant? Or, or if they don't reply, then you can, you can go ahead and give the data. 
and there I think it's probably wiser to use you know uh, opt out because you can't expect people to you know to, to reply to a letter they get in the mail so you assume from their inertia that they don't mind you know um, their data being handed over to the to the new entrant so I think it's not so hard in practice to answer your question um, thank you. I think my first reply goes also to Deutsche Telekom. Um, I think, if I understood correctly, the point was that, uh, was that it is if you amass uh, huge amounts of data, it's easier for you to somehow leverage your advantage in one market into another market. Um, well, I think that my first comment on that would be that this is true for just about any market. Uh, this is not something which is limited to online markets. If you are any big company, let's call them Mercedes-Benz, it's also easier for you to, I don't know, enter into finance or anything else. It is, I think this is a general principle of how our economy simply works. Um, and I think what we shouldn't lose sight of is the, what really, really, really matters in digital markets is the attractiveness of your product. If I open my online shop today, or let's say I opened an online shop three years ago selling umbrellas, maybe successful in Brussels, I don't know, and um, imagine it becomes hugely successful. And a friend comes up to me and says, Jacob, I want to open a shop, an online shop on, uh, for raincoats, for example. Give me all of your data. Well, okay, even if I'm going to give him his data, and even if he will potentially have a certain advantage, this still doesn't replace you know, the attractiveness of his web page, the products itself, the customer experience, <coughs> delivery, etc., etc. Um, and when it comes, uh, um, um, as regards the issue on um, privacy and competition, I think on that we agree that um, these two things are separate, it's two separate goals. And the one problem that I see is when you, as far as I understand the investigation into Facebook, that in theory you could have a judgment against Facebook um, under privacy rules and under competition rules for the same alleged infringement. And I think this is something which, well, goes against any principle of law. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you all, the, the fearless few who stayed to the very end. <laughs> and it's been a very, very good discussion. We will be doing more work on this topic uh, in our research program over the coming year here at Bruegel. Thank you for your interest. Thanks for the questions. And most importantly, thank you to the panel and to our two professors from coming from afar and sharing these valuable insights with us. And thank you also to everyone else on the panel for the, for the good discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.